Hello and welcome to Dialogue and Debate. My name's Ed Newell and I'm the Chief Executive here at Cumberland Lodge. If you're unfamiliar with us, we're a charity founded in 1947 and we're based in Windsor Great Park. We convene multi-sector conferences, panel debates and retreats that engage people of all ages, backgrounds and perspectives in candid conversations on pressing issues relating to social cohesion. If this is your first time joining us, Dialogue and Debate is our regular series of webinars where we respond to key themes emerging from our conferences and other work, as well as other pressing issues arising in society. Our last Dialogue and Debate took place in June on the topic of social cohesion post lockdown. And we discussed the changes in social cohesion during the pandemic and how we can harness a sense of community and solidarity in our communities as restrictions are lifted. And if you missed it, and you can watch uh, the webinar on demand via the Read, Watch, Listen page of our website or on SoundCloud and other major podcasting platforms. Today, we'll be exploring one of the key issues highlighted in our recent Faith and Belief 2040 report, the changing role and wider community use of religious buildings in the UK in our increasingly multicultural multi-faith society. Horizon scanning is a notoriously difficult thing to do. And when we embarked on our Faith and Futures 2040 project, there was no thought about a global pandemic. Whether or not the pandemic will have any effect on the trends on religious affiliation underpinning our work remains to be seen. And similarly, the Church of England has announced plans for a major initiative to create 10,000 lay-led churches whether this will stop the decline in its membership, which also underpins our report, also remains to be seen. But one thing we know for sure is that the pandemic has made us think very quickly about how we use religious buildings. And COVID has accelerated change, both in terms of moving worship online and in using buildings for wider community purposes. If you're interested in how faith communities responded to the pandemic, I do recommend the report by Common Vision on restoring social confidence, lessons from faith-led social action during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we'll put a link to this report in the chat box. The other report to recommend, and the one we'll be looking at today in tandem with the Cumberland Lodge report, is The House of Good, produced by the National Churches Trust. This report is about the social impact of what goes on in church buildings. Now to help us discuss the future use of religious buildings, I'm delighted that we're joined today by Eddie Tulesevich, Head of Communications and Public Affairs at the National Churches Trust, Will Watt, the Director of State of Life, which did the impact measurement for the House of Good Report, Jagdev Singh Verdi, General Secretary of the Guru Nanak Dabar Gudwara, and editor of British Sikh Report, and Sawat Tasneem, founder of 14 Consulting and fellow of the Centre of Conscious Design. Thank you all very much indeed for being with us. And to those who are participating in the webinar, we'd like to invite you to submit questions. And to do so, you can use the Q&A function if you're watching live on Zoom or by commenting on our Facebook live stream. We'll also be live tweeting, and it would be great to hear your views and questions, and you can do so by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge 
and using the hashtag dialogue debate. Now we're going to start the, the webinar as we normally do with a quick poll and the poll is going to pop up on your screen now. And the question is, are you aware of any religious buildings that are now being used for wider community purposes as a result of the pandemic? Yes or no? So let's find out if any of you have experienced wider usage. Well, there we are, look at that. Absolutely 50-50, so that's very interesting. Well, we'll pick up on, on this uh, as we go along. And we're going to start uh, with Eddie. So Eddie, um, perhaps you could tell us a bit about in what ways the shifting faith and belief landscape is affecting religious buildings across the UK. And also linked to that, how does the attendance at churches and other places of worship compare? Thank you very much, uh, uh, Ed, for uh, asking me uh, here, here today. Uh, just briefly, the National Churches Trust, we are a charity um, that helps church buildings. Uh, specifically, we have a Christian focus, so I'm going to talk particularly about church buildings, but some of the things I say may well be applicable to other faiths as well. Um, it's a huge sector. There are over 40,000 church buildings in the UK, and um, most uh, churches actually want people in them. Uh, that could be for worship. It could be um, for community activities. It could be just sightseeing. Um, so uh, although churches may seem like forbidding buildings sometimes, actually the people who run those buildings actually want people in them. Um, uh, and sometimes they're not very good at showing that they want people in them. There's a bit of a closed door mentality. Um, uh, and uh, also we just be careful what we think of a church because we may think of, you know, the typical, you know, uh, medieval building in the countryside or in a city centre with a spire and so on. But out of those 40,000 odd churches, there are new churches. Uh, it could be, you know, uh, a high street shop fronts, black majority churches or converted cinema, evangelical churches. Um, so there's a, a lot more to church buildings than perhaps what you think of as a sort of picture postcard of, you know, the, the British landscape. Um, in terms of who goes to church buildings, well, the last polling we did in 2018 um, showed that just under 50% of all British adults had visited a church. And that could be for a service. It could be to attend a wedding or a funeral or just popping in or for some, you know, civic activity. Um, and interestingly, although the numbers were smaller for non-Christian denominations, 59% of people who said they were Christian had been in a church in 2018. 50% uh, of people who said they were Muslim had been in a church building. 70% of people who said they were Hindu had been in a church building, 51% of people who said they were Buddhists had been in a church building, 30% of people who said they, they, were, they were Jewish had been in a church building. So these aren't just exclusive sort of, you know, ghettos for Christians. They are buildings that people do visit just because they're, you know, in the public domain. Um, you know, and, uh, so I think, uh, uh, so that's, that's the number of people. And, and on, a, on a sort of weekly basis, regular attendance, Depends whose figures you believe. The Church of England says about a million people attend a, a, a service on a regular basis. In other words, perhaps more than half, half, you know, half the number of services a year. 
Um, they, they attend more services in a year than they, than they don't, not every week or every month. Uh, probably the Ca Roman Catholics say it's about the same. So you could add another million. And then if you add, you know, uh, black majority churches, Baptists and so on. I mean, you could be talking about two and a half million people who, who attend on a regular basis, which is a sizable number of people. There aren't any uh, figures for tourism, um, you know, who people just pop in, and there aren't really any figures of people using churches for community purposes. But, you know, those numbers are substantial and they could be larger. If, you, if you're talking about people using a church for, to, you know, as a food bank to go in and pick up food or as a clothes bank or attending, you know, in the past a concert or something like that, you know, it could be, could be a similar number of people. So a uh, bit, bit finger in the air, but let's say that perhaps, you know, three million people might be in a church uh, once a week. You know, that's an optimistic figure, but could could be could be about right. I hope, I hope that sort of answered the, the basic question. It does. Thank you very much, Eddie. I'm, I'm conscious when I was a parish priest that um, the number of people that were coming into the churches where I was working was much higher than the the, the figures we had to report officially for attendance. So it's uh, that's that's an important factor. Just, so just a, quick, a, quick, a, quick, a quick aside to that: the yeah. Roman Catholics do uh, they measure church attendance? once a year and they have a census it takes place in the autumn half term when people are away you know so there must be a lot of under measuring going on there yeah uh, that's an interesting <laughs> point as well we're going to move on to, to will because will you did the uh, the analysis for the social impact and um, perhaps you could tell us um more about the social economic value of churches particularly uh in in the uk Hello. Um, yep. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yes. Yeah, so the, I'll probably explain a little bit about the uh, sort of the nature of the work that we do at State of Life. So it's it's what you would broadly term um, non-market economics. Um, so there's two different ways of looking at things, but um, there's an overall um, uh, document in the UK that's run by the Treasury, which is called the Green Book. And that's uh, how the UK evaluates all policies. And so what we do is look at all sorts of different interventions and uh, social uh, projects in line with how you would value them uh, to the economy, um, which um, can sound incredibly complex. But it, essentially, we started doing this for um, a huge sector like volunteering back in London for London 2012, actually. And so volunteering obviously is a gift of free time, but it has enormous value in terms of the things that volunteers do. And um, you will all be more than aware of that as churches are a huge source of volunteering. You're actually much more likely to volunteer if you are uh, somebody who attends a place of worship. Um, so there's two ways that you look at um, measuring these sorts of things. Um, you look at uh, firstly, what's the market value? And that's just... It's quite a limited view, really. It's um, it, it's the money that goes in and out of a of an organisation, um, and that has a significant value. And then you will look at what's broadly called the non-market value, and that becomes um, really significant with something like churches. So what you're looking at there are the uh, the much wider values in terms of the services that are provided by a church, and that was very much what we wanted to look at with. Um, uh, with the National Churches Trust. So you, there's, there's a certain amount of, of value that is um, in the form of um, 
money spent, uh, youth clubs, that sort of thing, people that uh, hire the halls, etc. That um, accounts for about a quarter, um, well, not even a quarter, a fifth of the value. The, the lion's share of the value is in the enormous, and this is why we called the report the House of Good, it's in the enormous good that is done by these places of worship. And, it, and it, it's um, we were working primarily with, um, as Eddie has said, Church of England figures, but this is true of all denominations and all faiths, really. There's an enormous amount of community service that is provided. Um, we did we couldn't look at everything because there's just so much that churches do. But we took sort of broadly the, the what what we sort of saw as the most impactful, valuable, and most widely provided. So um, mental health services, drug and alcohol treatment, youth groups, um, and as Eddie's mentioned, um, food banks. Almost. Almost all food banks are run by churches, so they really are sort of stepping in to provide a safety net that the state is failing to provide, um, somewhat scandalously, some would say. So that's um, what we looked at. It builds up um, uh, the, the report that we published was uh, published a value of um, 12.4 billion a year. But um, the, the reality is, um, in about a month's time, you can multiply that by four quite comfortably based on what's going to be published as the new green book guidance on valuation. So the, 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 uh, obviously sometimes when you talk in billions, it starts to alienate everyone. Most people aren't earning anything like that. So to, to put it in context, most churches are providing a sort of, you know, are the size of a pretty, pretty good sized business in the local area in terms of the value that they're providing. Um, and that, I mean, there's lots of detail in the report. It's 70 pages, but that's broadly how we did it. Um, and obviously, I'm, I'm sure there'll be questions. So it'll probably be more interesting when we get to that point. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, Will. Uh, Jagdev, we're going to move on to, to, to you and to ask you, do you think that COVID-19 has sparked new creativity with regards to how religious buildings are used within the community? But also, what were the trends already underway uh, in terms of, of broadening uh, community use. Um, thank you, uh, and thank you for inviting me to take part in this event. Um, I'd like to speak from the perspective of uh, Guru Nanak Dabar Gurdwara in Gravesend, uh, which is the building that you see behind me on the screen. And if I can share my screen uh, with you so that I can share some images while I'm talking. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what you see behind me is uh, the Guru Nanak Dabar Gurdwara in Gravesend. And one of the uh, benefits for us, I think, was that it's a fairly new building. We, we it was opened in 2010 when we moved in. It's been built with the 21st century in mind. Um, but we have had to adapt in many ways uh, during the pandemic. I mean, in terms of being part of the wider community, as, as we always try to sort of take part in wide activities. So, uh, for example, you see the uh, purple lighting um, at night. This was on uh, the day of the census, um, because as, as uh, big buildings around the country were lit up uh, to publicize the census, so we took part in that as well. Um, in terms of the pandemic, um, here you see our main Diwan Hall on the left, how it might normally be on a busy day. 
but on the right, you see it uh, as it was is uh, in sort of current times, the maximum capacity of 175 and people having to sit well away from each other unless they're in family bubbles and so on. Um, so we have had to adapt uh, quite a bit in different ways. Um, the Gurdwara itself is part of a large sort of complex. Uh, it's eight and a half acre site. And so we have uh, really quite uh, comprehensive sports facilities. Um, last year, we just put in at the beginning of the year an outdoor gym, which has had limited use because of lock different lockdowns during the year. But whenever it's been able to be used, it is actually extensively used uh, by all age groups from the very young to the elderly. Um, and there are two football pitches there. Uh, we have 17 uh, football teams in the Guru Nanak Football Club. Um, three of them are ladies and girls teams, and they're open to everybody. So they're not just uh, open to Sikhs. Actually, everybody's uh, able to join with the clubs. And in, 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 indeed, I think it was three or four years ago, we had one team of the under-14s, which was entirely non-Sikh. So those facilities are open to everybody. Um, and... Uh, Lots of other sports. So there's a, a sports uh, hall, gymnasium, um, and there's a track around the whole of the, the field. People can come for walks or running and so on. So quite comprehensive sports facilities open and available to all. We have also have a, a sort of welfare type of uh, function that we try to promote. So on any key days, we invite people in to come and uh, have awareness stalls and so on. And we've had to do a bit more of that in different ways over during the lockdown, whether it's online or through just single uh, sort of issue type of events. But normally on a big day, we would have stalls like these with, to raise awareness, whether it's about uh, the fire service, about fib, auto, uh, atrial fibrillation. Um, the fire service has actually been in to give um, training for resuscitation and so on. Um, so lots of things like that that we do, raising awareness about organ donation and so on. Um, and we also have a day centre for the elderly, which is run in partnership with Kent County Council. And again, it's trying to work in partnership with other um, agencies in the area. Um, we are blessed to have quite good educational facilities. So part of the design was that uh, a, a large part of uh, the first floor of the building is dedicated to education. So we have a quite nice, uh, well-equipped lecture theatre. There's a library, uh, there's a computer suite, and fairly large meeting room as well. So we are. Uh, so the building has actually been designed uh, to serve as wide a population as possible. Um, so it's been relatively easy for us to adapt during the pandemic uh, for COVID-19 purposes. Particular ways in which we have uh, used the facilities is on the, the very next day after the lockdown, we uh, started a langar service, a delivery service for vulnerable persons. Um, and a lot of volunteers came forward, people who had been furloughed, they were at home, uh, not working, they actually volunteered and we set up arrangements in a very COVID compliant way uh, so that we could prepare food, deliver it, um, make sure the kitchen is sanitized every day at the end of the day, ready for the next day separate team set up for preparing, for packing, for delivering, <laughs> taking orders online and so on. Um, and that was a way of quickly repurposing uh, the facilities so that we could actually take the uh, facilities out to the community and also to NHS staff. So during the first lockdown in the three months, we delivered about 64,000 meals and it was, it's been a similar uh, situation in the second lockdown. 
So those are just some some examples of how we have used our facilities. I think um, I'll stop there for now. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. That's very fasc it's fascinating and uh, is. It's great that you aren't constrained as some of us are by medieval buildings in terms of how we can do work with the community. So we're going to, to move on to you. I mean, what role could religious buildings play in developing interfaith initiatives and improving community understanding of other faiths within our communities? Thank you, Ed. I think in the first instance, it is important to mention how places of worship can be perceived to those of no faith or other beliefs without the necessary understanding and experience of entering such an environment. These are physical spaces that carry symbolic reference that are thousands of years old. For some within society, it can be very difficult to comprehend and recognize the value and significance these places hold for people of faith. If one can't relate to this place or has ever stepped foot in a temple, a church, mosque, synagogue, the question arises, does this benefit us or our community? The political and media landscape can greatly influence how these narratives are also played out. We've also seen a greater need and uptake for security in places of worship due to societal division. So there's some sort of food for thought there. Places that are not only the places that not only provide sanctuary, but these places of worship are also um, to inform, collaborate, and share knowledge. I've been really fortunate to work alongside the government-funded Community Champions Program and alongside faith leaders who opened their doors during the pandemic of their places of worship to the public and converted the space into a vaccine hub. This created an opportunity for hundreds of people of faith and none to visit for the first time and see for themselves what a mosque or a church or a um, you know, temple actually was. The interesting thing here is some said that they had either visited the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul or the Jumma Masjid in Delhi or the Golden Temple in Amritsar, but had never entered a mosque or a church in the UK. So that process and need actually broke barriers in the first instance. To see a mosque or a temple or a church that can serve the wider community for the better. With regard to mosques, the impact of globalization, diaspora, immigration and refugees who come from Muslim countries, not only are they going through the motions of having to assimilate in order to fit into to British society, there is also the innate sense of belonging to the familiar, to attend a mosque for um, obligatory prayers, form friendships, be part of a community. As people of faith, this is a great opportunity for outreach, to show compassion and welcome new cultures and diversity of thought. The demand is certainly there. What's interesting is younger Muslims, for example, are a growing demographic who strongly identify with their faith. Therefore, we're seeing an increase in planning applications to create a place of worship that serves city workers and students alike. But these groups are also leading with interfaith initiatives in the workplace. So cultural expectations are also shifting and social value is now a corporate mission. Outreach is also important. You know, host your friends, neighbors from other faiths regularly 
Too often our assumptions of a group are fed to us through what we read or see on social media. Engage in person. If you're celebrating an event, have you truly reached out to all of the community? The House of One project, which I'm sure many um, on, this, on this call will know, the Interfaith Project in Berlin is a new multi-faith development created to improve interfaith dialogue. And this intends to do just that. Thank you very much indeed, Sawa. Can I go back to, to Eddie? Because I'm conscious, you, Eddie, you mentioned about um, how people of different faiths come into churches, but I'm wondering if we almost look at it in a much broader perspective, whether we, whether we know how much interaction there is going on in terms of people, of Christians going into uh, non-Christian places of worship, uh, and what are the reasons why people are, are are being in these different buildings? Do we do we know what why they're there? Are they there for sightseeing, attending um, uh, services, yeah. etc.? Well, I mean, uh, 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 religious buildings. Look, you know, Stonehenge was once a religious building. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it isn't. It, it is still, you know, for a couple of days of the year, it was solstice. But most people think of it as a tourist attraction. But actually, that's you know, perhaps you know, one of Britain's oldest religious buildings. It's still there. So, um, you know, uh, uh, so you know, there's there's quite a variety of those buildings. As to as to why people go in, I mean, the poll. I can I mean, if you want figures, going back to the polling we did in 2018, you know, what there was a, a range of questions. Was it for attending a religious service? Uh, was it to attend a wedding, a funeral, uh, a christening, um, which could be. Uh, uh, people coming from all faiths or none to that sort of stuff? Was it to an, attend an art event? Because there are things like concerts and art exhibitions uh, are going on in church buildings. Going back to what Sarvat said, um, uh, election time, a lot of churches are the places where um, hustings are held. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's regarded as a neutral space uh, and it could apply to uh, other religious buildings where political leaders can come along and be questioned or quizzed about their campaigns. So there's that sort of use of a building. Tourism is certainly, uh, 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 you know, one thing, sightseeing, you know, people just like going into buildings. So there, there is a, a wide range of reasons why people may go into a building. As to, you know, whether, uh, uh, yeah, as, as to how that could be encouraged, yeah, I'm, the Berlin House of One is, is clearly something. I've got a few little thoughts here which may not be National Churches Trust policy. But I mean, um, there are very successful multi-faith chaplaincies at universities. There's one at Canary Wharf for the financial uh, community, obviously not during COVID. Airports have multi-faith chapels. So, I mean, it's not a concept that is completely alien to, uh, to the UK, having, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, you know um, uh, religious people, religious you know, priests, imams, uh, you know, uh, uh, rabbis uh, in a multi-faith uh, community, um, providing their religious, uh, uh, you know, services to people from different faiths. But it's a shared space, mm. uh, and that's probably, you know, just because you can't have six different religious buildings in an airport. Um, uh, uh, but but you know, things are happening on, on, on within the Christian community, even where churches uh, are, are no longer wanted by the denomination. Um, uh, and that's particularly uh, going on quite a lot in Scotland, where a lot of churches are closing um, and are being uh, taken over by the local community. So there's one that we funded recently called Kirkaldy Old Kirk in Fife, and that's owned by Trust now. It's no longer owned by the Church of Scotland. And, you know, 
I would say 80% of that now is community stuff, but they're open for services and any Christian uh, denomination can have a service there. So there are Quakers meeting there, the Church of Scotland meeting there. I don't think the Roman Catholics have said they want to meet there, but it's open to offers. So it's used by different um, Christian denominations, which, you know, is... It doesn't happen that often, but I think that's that. You know, once a ch- it, so three things here. There's the ownership of the building, um, you know, and some owners say, well, we're ju- we're only going to restrict use to one sort of person. But if it's owned by a community trust, uh, uh, it can open up. There's the uses we're talking about. What uses do you want to happen in that building? And some people may be more restrictive than others. You know, if you're a particularly evangelical church you may only want to open for worship and for the purposes of, let's use the word conversion or mission, getting people in to be Christians. Whereas if you're a, a different um, a Christian denomination, uh, you may be open to all sorts of uses. And there's the, then, there's, then there's the funding of, of these buildings, because if you want to create a community space, and then it's amazing what you've done in Gravesend, a new building, um, a huge building, and you're you know, providing such an amazing range of services, but it costs money. And if you are wanting to convert or, or adapt uh, an existing church to really be of use to the community, then you've got to pay for lose kitchens heating um uh, uh, so it costs money so who's funding that and an individual church may find it difficult to raise the money the government really doesn't fund uh churches uh, to a great extent it does sometimes and then it doesn't fund them for a, for a long period of time so who's going to fund turning these buildings into uh community spaces uh so uh, it's you know there but there are there are i think there are it's interestingly um as sort of religion becomes christian religion becomes a little bit less important for some people then it allows them to open the building to other uses because they want people in there because otherwise the building is going to be empty thank you anyone like to call any panelists like to comment on what eddie just said yagdev you want to come in Yes, yeah, so I'm just going to say from uh, a Gurdwara perspective, um, by design and definition, the Gurdwara is open to all. And one of the ways that we get a lot of uh, visitors from other faiths is uh, when we're using it more as an educational uh, sort of purpose. So schools from across the whole of Kent and beyond, when uh, in the term when the, people, the students may be looking at Sikhism, then they will visit the Gurdwara. And that's the way of actually raising awareness at a very young age, uh, just telling them about Ziki and uh, so they're, they're, they're not puzzled when they see somebody with a turban and a beard and so on. They're, they're actually aware, we tell them about the uh, history of the faith, uh, the general concept of Ziki. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, um, police officers at uh, the, the Kent Police's training college when they're going through the training, a visit to the Gurdwara is actually part of the uh, program. And so we'll get every month, uh, four to six weeks, a, a group of police officers coming who are in their training program. Um, University of Third Age groups, uh, they, they come regularly to the Gurdwara and lots of other groups as well. And we do try to make it a very welcoming environment for all, um, actually give them a, a guided tour, a, a talk on the background to Sikhi and the concept of Langer and so on. 
and we're, we're there to answer questions as well. Um, and I, I think that's uh, one way of actually opening up to a wider audience. Um, just be welcoming and make sure people are aware that they can just, just visit, just either pop in or have an organized visit if they want to. Um, and we are, I appreciate, you know, we're blessed with a huge, uh, large Gurdwara, one of the largest in the country. Um, and there are a lot of smaller Gurdwaras around the country as well, which are in a very different situation. And during COVID, different uh, places of worship have had very different challenges. And, and again, we've been uh, lucky that because of the facilities we have, we've been able to actually maintain the services in different ways, whether it's through online broadcasting and so on. And a lot of people of all faiths have actually then commented and, and visited either online or physically, uh, just to sort of uh, keep in touch with us. Thank you very much indeed. I'm going to bring in some questions now, which have been uh, submitted uh, online. And uh, Simon Keyes has asked this, and I think it I think it's going to open up a, a, more questions. And Simon asks, he said, "I think we are witnessing the collapse of the Anglican parish." system in many rural areas. Any thoughts about what happens next? And maybe that's probably direct that to Eddie and Will to begin with. I was well, literally, I was literally okay. just replying to that one actually in the, in the, on the, on the texts. Um, this is a, this is a very difficult one because, um, and this is the, this is true of a lot of, um, We've done a study on the sort of uh, the social and economic value of parks, which is not the same as churches, but you know what is the value of the local park? And the truth is that it's much more valuable, three to five times more valuable in urban uh, deprived communities because it's rarer. Uh, you know, it's 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 logical um, that the park is worth more in those communities, and and, and it's the same really with the church. Um, in the in the valuation methodology that we looked at because the services that are provided are more necessary in the urban environments there's more people there's more people need help with be it food banks be it youth groups be it drug and and so it was something that did come up again and again in the study because um there is an image probably in the british psyche of a church as a lovely rural building um but the reality of it is that while those buildings are lovely from a heritage point of view, the community value and the provision of the sort of social care that comes out of the building, it often just isn't there. So the, 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 the sort of case for investing in those churches and protecting them is, is actually, and it's just unfortunately, you know, this, I'm sure there's people bridling as I'm speaking on this, but the case for protecting those lovely rural churches is less than it is to strategically invest in the sort of the urban churches that are just providing more service to the community. And that's, you know, it's an uncomfortable truth and an inconvenient truth to borrow from Al Gore. Mm. But um, yeah, that's what the study finds. Well, if, I mean, if, if rural churches do become redundant, but they are of significant uh, architectural, cultural interest, I mean, how, do we need to think how to how to manage all this as a, as nationally? Well, uh, 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 can I come in there? Um, uh, a, a very good question. I think I, I would just say why 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 does the questioner think that the 
that the Church of England parish system is crumbling in rural areas. And there could be a lot of answers to that. You know, it could be the way that, that the Church of England manages its diocese, you know, lack of vicars, lack of money, it could be a lot of reasons, um, or could just be, you know, lack, lack of people worshipping, um, you know. Uh, so uh, uh, it's, not a, it's not a straightforward, you can't find a straightforward answer to why, that, why that's happening. But um, uh, in terms of those rural churches, uh, let, let's imagine the situation where more and more of them become sort of un, untenable because there's no vicar to look after them. The congregation is very small. Well, I mean, they can be sold off, you know, um, and Church of England uh, itself uh, only sells about 20 or 30 a year. But if you look at Wales, um, you know, uh, particularly sort of Presbyterian chapels have been closed and sold off in huge numbers over the last 20 years. Wales uh, in all, if you look at the UK, is the most secular part of the UK in terms of religious belief. Um, so you can sell them off, um, and someone can turn it into a you know nice private house. Um, uh, it can be sold off uh, and turned into uh, you know community housing. You know, not just one house, but sort of multiple you know, housing for the community it's an attic building um and there's the churchyard as well to include on that and that you know that's legitimate there's a huge housing problem in, in the uk and rural areas are, are particularly hard, hard pressed on that or it can be um mothballed um uh uh, and the Church of England has got a sort of system called festival churches, uh, whereby, uh, you know, the church is effectively open for, only open for worship, let's say, you know, six times a year. Um, but it can be used for community events if people want it to be. So it's sort of not closed or sold off, but it's mothballed, a sort of a nice British compromise. Uh, let's put it that way. Um, or or um, the community can take over the running of it. Um, and there have been a few instances where the Church of England has closed a church. And then a few years later, the community said, well, look, there's this amazing building. Nothing's happening there. Let's take it over um, and, and run it as a, as a community asset. And, <clears throat> you know, the, the government um, uh, has got something called the localism agenda. <clears throat> and uh, that, uh, that, that's used for people who think there's a community asset that they want to take over and run themselves because it's no longer profitable or something like that. Now, most of the money there has gone to pubs to keep pubs open and they're no longer owned by the brewer, they're community pubs. You could imagine something similar for, for, for churches in rural areas, uh, but, but that's a difficult one to do because then that's the, the government putting money into religious buildings uh, and then also the Church of England might not want to, uh, to have its asset offloaded onto the community, but that there are, there are really encouraging ways forward, I think. Um, and, you know, it, 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 you know uh, we're in the house, us of good we we did some case studies will it as urban churches quite often they're not heritage buildings they're victorian churches they're modern concrete buildings that cost an awful lot of money to maintain uh, and so there's you know a, a, a decision to me do we put money into this building because it's, it's you know it's, it's, got, it's going to cost a lot to get right um, but um, you know even the small rural areas you know social services have been closed down you know the, the hospitals moved there's no post office left and in in some of those churches small you know they're not isolated villages but small rural communities that's where the mother and baby you know but mother and toddler classes take place where it's before covid where you know where the health visitor visits uh where all sorts of things go on um uh, so you know 
religion and community activities. And just this is this is a beautiful building. We love it. We want to keep it open. Uh, the best way to keep a, a church open, somebody once said to me, is to put a sign outside, you know, this church is going to close. And then everybody says, we can't have that church close. We want to do something about it. Thank you, Eddie. I, we're going to move on to another related question. I'm going to, but I'm going to direct this to, to Jag Dev and Sarah Watt to get their perspective on this. Um, and it's quite a long question, but here we go. So the, uh, from an anonymous attendee, the future of many churches, especially in deprived areas, is under threat due to crumbling roofs, deteriorating church halls, and inadequate kitchen and toilet facilities. Some of the most vulnerable and isolated people in our society rely on the services provided in church buildings for essential support, and they will continue to do so during and after the COVID crisis. Do the panel believe that simple maintenance of the church's infrastructure is important to the services being provided? And if so, then how will it be funded? Maybe Jagdev or Sam might come in. Jagdev, you've got a wonderful building, which is purpose-built, modern. You don't have these issues, hopefully, at the moment. Um, I think what, as uh, the uh, person uh, raising the question has said, uh, a lot of the buildings are run by volunteers, as is our Gurdwara. Uh, I think it's a, a big issue of how you keep the volunteers motivated. And uh, within Sikhi, it, it, the seva, as we call it, it's selfless service is a key concept. And so we do have to actually uh, very much uh, rely on the volunteers. And so there are, there's a whole team, I think over 200 people probably at, at any sort of one time who are providing some sort of service or other to the Gurdwara, whether it's local tradesmen, the retired person, the young and old, all, all age groups, <laughs> most gender. But we, we do have to rely on a lot of uh, voluntary sort of services. Um, and I think it's, it's uh, when they see the good that's being done through the, the seva and the service, then it energizes them even more. Um, uh, and uh, also then those who can't volunteer their time, they donate as well. But I think it's, it's become circular that when, when people see the good that's being done through services being provided, then they will help even more. Um, so uh, so we, we are blessed with the facilities we have, which it's sort of become circular. Um, give an example, um, over Christmas, when we had all these lorry drivers stranded uh, at Dover, and we were asked if we could help provide some food for them uh, through the six charity Khalsa Aid. We worked with them to provide food. And that got such publicity that actually led to quite a lot of people donating more to say we want to help in whatever way we can. And that helped us to provide even more sort of services. Uh, and I think people will help if they see the outputs, the outcomes, and how, you know, what, what is the good that's being achieved. Uh, so it, 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 you need actually a proactive policy of engaging with the volunteers and the philanthropists and uh, those who can donate and help uh, to, to keep not just a building, don't think of them as a building, but it's a resource for the community and how can we get the best out of it for, for all concerned. Yeah, I think I'd, um, <clears throat> I'd mirror and um, agree with what Jagdiv has just said within sort of the, the, the mosque scenario, a lot of the funding is... Um, highly reliant upon beneficiaries um, and in terms of facility management, it is voluntary led. Um, so, you know, it, 
in terms of how that becomes sustainable, a lot of it is to do with um, outcomes. And what I mean by outcomes is opportunities for the community and wider community. And it really is a case of communicating that. So once people are engaged and informed and know what the long-term sort of benefits are, then we see an increase in donations. Um, and there've been some great projects where you know the wider community have benefited. I just wanted to, to share some thoughts on Eddie's previous comment with regard to economic value. Um, you know, there are options to lease these spaces to groups or organizations. Many mosques are formed in underutilized church buildings, for example, and depending on the scale of the site, the potential to create a mixed use building or affordable residential housing would serve a need and a demand when we know there is a short shortage. And due to government cutbacks in recent years, um, an infinite amount of youth clubs have had to close. Inner city areas lack community spaces where young people and the elderly are encouraged to use. So there's an opportunity to offer upskilling and to create safe recreational spaces. But we should also factor in other spiritual beliefs that also seek a space to congregate. And for me, I, I see this as an opportunity of integration and social cohesion. Um, as a young child growing up in Oxford in the 80s, our local parish, parish church hall was a place where we played with children from many you know ethnicities where we learned of other cultural festivals where I met my friend's parents were invited for Christmas lunch um, and the community came together so I kind of feel as though we've actually sort of you know reversed in terms of outreach and engagement and there's just an infinite amount of opportunity to, to bring that sense of community and belonging back. Thank you very much indeed I'm going to bring in a, a comment here from uh from, from Jane Potts and uh, Yagdev, you, you majored on the role of volunteers, but um, Jane has said this, maintenance is always an issue. Many schemes have been set up, but we still have the same issue. Should we not be outsourcing the maintenance of these buildings rather than relying on volunteers? And I'm wondering whether Eddie or, or Will might want to come in on, on this. Um, perhaps any role that, the, that uh, the state should have, either local authorities or national government? Uh, that's a, if I just go first, I mean, it's a, it's a broad question. Um, and just going back on what people were saying, um, I think these are just, these are community assets, church buildings. Yes, they are places of worship. But, you know, the Church of England likes to say it's got, a, you know, it's got a presence in every community. That used to be its sort of strap line. We're, we, we've got a presence in every community because, you know, the Church of England, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a sort of legislative sense, is there for everybody. Um, you know, um, it, it, it's the established church. You know, you can believe or not believe it's there for you. Um, uh, uh, so, you know, this, and these and these are everything else closing. These, these are tremendous assets and they're there the buildings are already there um so somebody said in the previous uh, uh, post you know there are post offices in churches there are village shops in churches we just need a lot more of that um uh, 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 a lot of it's happening already but they, they, they sh you know local authorities should seize on that if they if they're closing something down they could use the church for that you know libraries libraries are closing left right and center 
you know, why not put your libraries in the church buildings and use the volunteers uh, that, 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 you know, the, the volunteers that the church brings with it to run the libraries? There's lots of possibilities for, for using those buildings. In terms of maintenance, I mean, I'm not going to say very much, to be honest, but beyond the fact that, you know, uh, uh, sometimes uh, maintenance is, uh, we all do that. You know, we, you know, I had a shed in my back garden um, and, you know, the, the whatever it was, the, the asphalt on the, on the shed thing started to give way and then the, the rain came in and then, you know, the wood started to rot and, you know, and I had to replace the whole roof. Um, but I could just have fixed that little hole and sorted the whole thing rather than have to spend time and money, you know, putting in a new roof. And that's sometimes the case with churches because, you know, they don't get round to the maintenance because there's no one to do it. But, you know, just doing simple things like clearing drains, replacing slip tiles, patching up a bit of mortar that's gone wrong, you know, that, that will keep your church or any building going um, for, for, for much longer. And then you won't have a big repair bill if you just wait for it all to fall down. But that's, that, you know, that's something with infrastructure. The NHS knows about that. You know, schools, people don't maintain buildings because they're, they're, there may be no incentive or there may, may be no money to do the maintenance. So much better to wait until the roof collapses and then try and raise a million quid to fix the roof because it's more glamorous as well. Will, I noticed that you were looking at your ceiling when Eddie was talking, so I hope you've not got any water dripping on your head. But anything you want to say about, about uh, finance? I think Starlight said it really well. I think lots of, lots of the buildings are already providing these um, multi-use services. And the, the case for um, strategic funding is, is enormous. You know, you've got the agendas like mental health, um, the, the value of the value of the church buildings is 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 half that of the care home budget, and you've got this whole this gaping question of social care, and and you've got these existing buildings that have got superb volunteers ready to to do good, and and they're they're being left to crumble, and you know the congregation themselves have to prop them up. Um, and it's it's uh, it is crazy, really. I mean, it, an analogous uh, situation is something like sport and playing fields. You know, um, in this country, there's Sport England that um, has a lot of money spending on facilities, and they have, you know, well over three hundred million a year. There's nothing like that for churches, and it's just when you look at the good that is being done, it's when you've got huge agendas like loneliness, mental health, and social care. It's absolutely crazy that there isn't strategic investment from either central or local government that isn't organised and aligned. It, it doesn't make any sense at all. And you just need to get rid of that ancient separation of church and state because, frankly, the church is stepping in where the state is failing. And that's absolutely clear. So, you know, um, you know, Jagdev talked about help, you know, food banks helping the, the lorry drivers. I mean, it's all they're picking up the pieces and it's just taken for granted. I think it's a bit of a scandal, to be honest. We could get into a big debate about that and I'm conscious of time. So I'm going to yeah. move on to two, two related questions. And um, this is the first one is from uh, Catherine Pepinster, who's asked, uh, Sarwat made a comment in her talk about an increase in the numbers of young Muslims and linked to an increase in planning applications for mosques with additional facilities. Uh, could she explain, expand further? And linked to that, there's an anonymous attendee who said, 
for communities where a different faith is growing, can disused religious buildings be shared? So perhaps uh, we could start with Sarwat and then open that up for a broader comments. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I mentioned, we're we're in a we're we're in a time now where societal and political factors are really influencing people and their identity. Um, and so when we're looking at the sort of Muslim demographic or the young Muslim de demographic, they're highly connected and um, are very proud of their faith identity. Um, and sort of before, if we're looking at sort of generations, the mosque was something that wasn't very accessible. But now when we have this group that are working professionals, they have very good incomes they're actually becoming the benefit, you know, the benefactors of these places. They're wanting to, to put their money and invest in a place where not only they can go to, um, they can go to Friday prayer when they leave the office if they're working in the city, um, but somewhere where their children can go. So this is a long-term um, outlook. You know, there's really strategy in that. And uh, a recent application that I'm, that I'm sure some, some will know would be um, in the West End where you have a huge amount of, of Muslim students, Muslim professionals working in that particular area. Um, unfortunately, planning wasn't um, granted, but as I mentioned, the need is there. So it's a case of, okay, if that doesn't work for us, we will have to go elsewhere and make it happen. So having people who are being active, and so there's a pot of money there, but it's where could they um, utilize and where can they actually have a place where they can worship peacefully, but also will mention mental health. This is something that's affecting everyone. And we're talking about well-being. we're talking about spirituality, and these are intrinsically linked to the main faiths. So we're seeing, you know, we're seeing these different sort of thoughts and processes of how can we now take this from discussion into action. Yeah. Thank you very much. Anyone else want to come in on this one? Eddie, you mentioned about. Sorry, I was going to so shaking your head, but you were mentioned. You did. You did talk. Um, you you mentioned about churches and mosques earlier on, and uh, I just wondered whether you could say something about um, interfaith use or or selling off to other faiths. Ah, uh, it's not. I, 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 not not my area of expertise, to be to be honest, uh, because we tend to find only Christian places of worship. But I think Sarvat said that a lot of. Yeah, you know, it may maybe maybe mosques or or, or other things are, are 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 based in former church buildings, and we do get um, uh, calls sometimes from um, uh, a Muslim community or a Hindu community, and they've just taken over a church and they want some money from us to help convert it. Unfortunately, our, our terms of reference don't allow us to fund that, but certainly that 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 is true. You know, in in a lot of sort of in inner city city areas, um, but they're also being taken over by new Christian communities as well. You know. Seventh Day Adventists and, and, and stuff, you know, um, uh, you know, sort of ch churches in 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 London, inner city bits of London that were being closed. Methodist chapels have been taken over by black majority churches. Um, and interestingly, just an aside, um, there's a big, uh, you know, church. A lot of churches have got organs in them, and uh, a lot of churches say we don't need these organs. And there was one church, uh, a Seventh-day Adventist church, they have a huge musical tradition, the Seventh-day Adventists, and they took over this church. And not only did they take over the church, but they, they, they found 
an organ from a you know Church of England church somewhere in rural England who didn't want their organ anymore and took over the organ, put it in there. Now they've got organ scholars, you know, studying the organ. So you know that one has to sort of have a sort of you know a several hundred years perspective or even seven thousand several several thousand years perspective about these buildings um you know i mean you know from a christian perspective of course jesus didn't say we must all go out and build churches um you know christianity in its origins was you know a, a religion of the tent you know in the desert you know it wasn't it wasn't bricks and mortar um uh, so these things do do go do go in huge phases but i think the worst thing would be if um, you know, if if a lot of churches were closed because uh, people gave up on them, um, I think they should always be a sort of place of sanctuary. Whether you're a believer or not, um, you may want to go to attend a service, or you may just want to sit there in front of a stained glass window with a candle, um, and you know, think about things, think about the nature of life, um, uh, and you could be uh, all any religion or or none, and do that in a church building. Thank you very much indeed, Eddie. We need to, to, to wrap up and uh, we could, we haven't talked about the, the sort of wider cultural artistic use of church buildings and musical usage, which I think is another uh, important issue, but uh, something close to my heart, but we've run out of time. So let's not go down that route, but note that the cultural uh, dimension is important too. Just before uh, we wrap up, just a comment here from uh, from Tanabesa, who says there are many Christian daycare centres uh, are usually attached to a church group or charitable institutions here in New Zealand. Great support for those groups and organisations. So it's great that we've got uh, someone coming in from New Zealand uh, today. And uh, it's good to know that these initiatives are taking place all around the world. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And thanks for really engaging in a really interesting discussion. If you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, you can sign up on the Keep In Touch page of our website or simply email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. And our dialogue and debate webinars generally take place at 11 a.m. on the first Wednesday of each month. Just before I say goodbye, I'd like to highlight that like all charities and uh, we're facing difficult times here at Cumberland Lodge, if you've enjoyed today's event and would like to support our work, we'd be grateful if you consider making a small donation. And you can do so online via our Just Giving page. And we'll put the link up to immediately after the webinar. But thank, thank you everyone for taking part. I'm sorry we couldn't get through all the questions. There were so many coming in. And thanks especially to our wonderful panelists, to Eddie, Will, Yagdev and Sarwat. And thanks to everyone for taking part today. Goodbye.